Thanks, band. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today if you're visiting. Uh, glad to have you guys with us for one of our services. Uh, we are right now in a, in a sermon series in the book of Acts. So if you, ha- if you have a phone app or a Bible or something you want to turn to, uh, you can, you can uh, do that if you'd like. You don't have to. Uh, this will be on screen here uh, as well. And that sermon insert, I think, has the whole passage today. It's a shorter one uh, compared to where we've been in Acts so far. So Acts 22, 22 to 29 is where we'll be. If you're brand new to the Bible or to the book of Acts or just kind of by way of reminder, Acts basically, it's called Acts because it refers to the actions of God, the actions of God in history after Jesus died for sins and of the world and, and rose again and ascended to be kind of a king of all things and to rule over all things, which he is still presently seated. But he sent his spirit uh, into the world to fill empty vessels like us, to save people and to kind of empower the church, to create the church and to empower the church to spread the gospel around uh, the known world of the day. And he's been doing it ever since. And so we're actually a part of this book. And in a, in a few weeks when we finish the book, we'll talk. Hopefully you've been seeing that throughout this series, but we'll talk more pointedly about how we, the, the, the history of this just feeds right into our story as well. So we have this kind of like, there's 28 chapters, we live in this kind of like Acts 29 era in a way, and we'll, we'll spend a lot of time really drilling into that in, in a few weeks. But, um, but again, hopefully we're seeing this as, as we kind of go here. So this is a history book. It's about the actions of the early church, the actions of the Holy Spirit in and through the church, the actions of Jesus uh, from heaven through his spirit, uh, just acting upon people and making his grace beautiful to them and saving them in in different ways from their old lives and from a state of disbelief, a state of rejection, a state of sin, a state of pride, and and a variety of things uh, like that. So, uh, in this latter part of the book, we've been reading about Paul the Apostle. He's one of the main characters. He's the guy that wrote half the New Testament, 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament written by him. He was the former Christian murderer that became a Christian himself because Jesus just appeared to him and saved him and said, I love you, I forgive you, you're mine now. And uh, you're my son, and I'm going to use you to, to bring the gospel to not the, especially uh, non-Jewish regions of uh, the Roman Empire. And that's been happening throughout the book. But Paul feels compelled to go back to Jerusalem to preach to his former uh, Christian murdering buddies, basically. And so he's back, he's going back to do that, and he's been arrested already. This has kind of already happened at this point in Acts. Now today he's going to be questioned by the Roman Tribune. And so uh, one quick thing to remind you of or tell you for the first time if you're new to this, uh, theologically, and Peter talked about it beautifully before that last song, the song talked about it, Spence talked about it last week, but this is not just a history book. This is a theology book. That's huge to get this. If we don't get this, we miss so much in the Bible. This was written by God primarily, not Luke, the human author. And so God used Luke to pen the words, but the, the, the theology here is uh, really, it's about God. It's about Jesus. He's the hero of the story primarily. And so with that, with that said, and again, we've, we've been beating this drum for so many weeks, uh, this is so important to get. The church images Christ. The church is full of or filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we relive out the experiences of Christ in this world. And so when Peter was talking about how, you know, we suffer because Jesus did, you know, our sufferings resemble Christ's. We don't just suffer because we have a message the world hates. I mean, that's true. But we also suffer because uh, Christ wants his story to be relived out in us so that it's seen as it's being heard through preaching. And so that's a huge thing to see. Paul then, Paul then had this in mind as we go. Paul is not just going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem because Christ went to Jerusalem to suffer. Paul is reliving out the passion of Christ so that kind of by way of Paul, we'll get back to the gospel and allow Acts to be an indirect then, not just direct, it is direct too, but an indirect proclamation of, of the gospel. 
If that's a little bit up here, that's okay. I'll explain this and show this as we go. A lot of you have heard us do this, but a lot of you are new uh, possibly uh, to these things. And so um, I, I want to make sure you're hearing that and not just getting history uh, because it won't matter to us if it's just history. And plus, we want to be true to what the Bible's saying, right? And so when God is saying, these are my words, and Jesus is saying, I'm breathing these out, and the scriptures are God-breathed and so forth, and uh, we have to really, you know, bend the knee to that, right? Submit to that. And so these are God's words, not man's. All right, Acts 22, 21, or 22 to 29 today. I'm just going to read this in three chunks and then comment with each section as we go. It's a shorter passage, but I'm going to shorten it even further by simplifying uh, the, the reading. Citizen by birth is kind of the main theme from today. More on that later. Uh, but we have to understand, I'm going back to last week's uh, passage briefly to, to get the last verse from last week's passage, uh, and that we have to understand kind of what's going on here to, to see why verse 22 is, kind of is what it is. Paul, when he's arrested, basically just shares the gospel with all these Jewish people. And, and it says uh, they're very angry with him. They think he's a traitor and a sellout. And so they want to kill him, and there's this big mob, and the mob will come back today. It's a big part of today. But for a while, they kind of, it says, when they heard Paul speak in Hebrew, they hushed. A hush fell over the crowd. And he had at least a few minutes to say, this is my story. I used to kill Christians. I was just like you in this. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a person of, of the Old Testament, person of the law, person of the traditions that you so, so ardently uphold. I, I get it. I'm like you. But this is what happened. This Jesus guy really is real. He really lived. He really died. He really was a son of God. He really rose again. I saw him with my own eyes. He appeared to me and he saved me. And now I'm a, a proclaimer of these, this very gospel that I so ardently opposed and that I, that I so killed people over uh, for, for preaching them themselves and imprisoned them for preaching themselves. So he gets through all of that, that testimony and actually they listened for a good uh, for a good chunk of it, the whole thing really. And then verse 21 says this. So at the end of his, uh, or toward, I don't know if he wants to finish or not, but he's going to finish because people freak out. But he says in 21, and then Jesus, Paul saying, and then Jesus said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul's a Jewish man. I will send you far away to non-Jewish peoples, to, uh, to the other parts of the Roman Empire, to distant lands, to bring my gospel to them so they can believe in me and also be saved. Just like you, Paul, that's what Jesus is saying. Okay, then verse 22, hear it in context. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. Isn't that crazy? Okay, but this is where we're looking at. Paul said, or the, the, the scriptures say, they listened to him up until this word when he, when he sort of dropped Gentiles into the, uh, into the testimony they lost their minds. And they said, now that you've not just mentioned Gentiles, but you mentioned God wants to save them. That was what they lost their minds over. God wants to save these wicked people. They, they lost their minds and, um, and then wanted to, to kill Paul. And then basically we have the rest of today's passage. But I want to stop here for a second. I mean, this section could be kind of subtitled, uh, the Jews are triggered <laughs> by the word Gentiles. That's like the trigger word of all trigger words for, for this, at least for this section in Acts. They lose their minds. Uh, Gentiles and the fact that Jesus said, go, I want to save them. All right, so a couple quick things here. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. I do want to park for a little bit, though, uh, because we've looked at this theme. Some of you have not heard this. It's just important to see it again. Remember, Acts is an angry book. So if, if, you're, if you're brand new to Acts, this kind of mob mentality um, in terms of how people respond to the Christian message is on repeat 
all the way throughout Acts. If you've been here, you know this, right? But I'm talking not just Jews as well. Gentiles, non-Jewish people, Jewish people, non-Christians of every shape and size hate Christians and take great offense at their message, and their message is the gospel. Their message is Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose again, and that is the only way to be saved. It's by the grace of God we're saved. And there's many ways to say that, of course, but that's the, the core of the message that they're, that they're opposing. And, and then on top of that, lumped onto that, this non-partiality, that because of that, more people now, it's opened up to more people, and that God has always had his eyes on, on the nations. And so when we talk about the reason for why there's so, this is a really important question hermeneutically, interpretationally, we talk about why, we, we, the reason here is that the word Gentiles is dropped. And, and so, and, and again, God wants to save them. And so when we ask why this is the case, we, and we feed that in, it's not just because these Jews are upset at this maybe apparent breaking of Old Testament patterns or law. You know, how like formerly God did separate Israel from the nations in the Old Testament for a time, for a certain epoch, but that was meant to pass. It communicated certain theological things we don't have time to talk about today, but it was always meant to pass. But it, it, it couldn't have been that. We know this because there are examples in Acts and elsewhere in the Bible of these very humbled, measured responses from Jews to this idea of Gentiles now being included into God's family. Else, again, elsewhere in Acts, but also uh, in, in the Gospel accounts as well. More so, in the Old Testament, it predicts that this time is coming. So for, for the Jews to be you know, people of their own scriptures, essentially, God promised this in many and various ways. He imaged it. He explicitly prophesied it through his prophets that a time was coming where this New Testament was coming, and it was going to have cosmic ramifications. And, and I mean cosmic, like for the whole world, whole cosmos. It's going to impact everything, uh, and it goes way behind, way, way, way beyond uh, the people of, of Israel. So this can't then just be about perceived Old Testament scripture twisting. So they're not just angry because, Paul, you're twisting the Old Testament. It can't be about that. This anger instead has to come from taking personal offense at the undeserving being accepted. And on one level, doesn't just sound like that, that these people are personally just taken aback and offended. It has to be that they're taking personal offense at this idea of the undeserving now being accepted. These people that didn't deserve it are now being, being accepted. It's basically an example of people railing at injustice. Them, they might be saying, really them of all people? They don't deserve it at all. Uh, so, and that's why bringing in not just the fact that Gentiles are named, but that, that, that Paul was saying, Jesus told me, the Son of God, God himself told me to go and move towards these extremely wicked people and save them. It, it instills this kind of injustice and unfairness and personal offense idea uh, in them, and so they, uh, again, lose their minds. Maybe a close example of this today would be, you know, God calling a, a person or us to go share and preach the gospel to white supremacists or misogynists or rapists or terrorists or serial murderers because he wants to save them and he wants to erase their sin forever. I mean, what's your response to that? How does that make you feel? Or what about people who have personally hurt you before? Like maybe really, really, really hurt you. What if God said, I want to save that person who really hurt you in the past? That's difficult, right? For Christians and non-Christians, this is difficult on two levels. One, it's offensive to think that God might be offensive or just difficult 
to think that God loves them basically and wants to save them, but two, it's, it's increasingly offensive to think that God wants to erase their sin forever by placing it on his son instead. So there's no, there's no vengeance for the person that hurt us or for our enemies because that, the, the vengeance was, was displaced onto Jesus Christ instead. And so justice is done. God is a God of justice. He deals with it, uh, but the way he deals with it uh, for the Christian is to place punishment on his son instead. This is the idea of, in theology, we call this just, sub, it's just substitution, right? By definition, this is substitute. Christ died for us, and he took this. And so, um, and so then, at like a third level here, if the gospel is true then, then Jesus' death, the, the, the divide between the two things and what Jesus' death accomplishes, but the divide between the two things is not good people and bad people, but saved people and not saved people, which fits really well with, with what, you know, theologically the Bible says elsewhere. Like, there's no, there is no, like, good or bad person anymore in Christ. Like, in the church, we don't talk about good and bad anymore. It's just saved. <laughs> it's bad people who are welcomed in. And so, um, I mean, morality is still a thing, but it's like in Christ, there's no partiality. That's not, there's no grades given on our works. It's just the acceptance of the undeserving. Uh, very, in, in many cases, people like us, like me. Very, very, very bad people like me. All right, so Jesus says, like, the last will be first. And so that means, um, to try to raise the bar here a bit, uh, even more, because this is true. I'm not exaggerating, but I, I want you to feel this so you can feel the anger of Acts 22. This is why they're angry. But if all this is true, this means that there will be in heaven repentant racists, but in hell there will be many people who are not racists but never repented. Right? If Jesus is the determiner and not our works, there will be people who we might consider the worst of society who will come to the end of their rope and believe in Jesus, who will live forever with Jesus and have their sins erased. But there will, be very, there will be also equally, on the opposite side of things, people who are on the outside, maybe really good, who will not be saved because they don't believe in Christ. Do you feel, again, I'm trying to like just poke a bit here and make you feel why this is so hard for the mobs. Do you feel the offense, the backwardness of this? And I'm speaking to Christians, most of you are Christians, I'm guessing, or I know. Some of you might not be yet, but wherever you're at spiritually, do you feel this, the backwardsness of this and the perceived kind of injustice? And that's why we come to this, this uh, word here, this phrase here in verse 22, it means so much. Up to this, they listened. So in other words, up to everything I just said in unpacking this idea, up to that, they listened. Then they freaked out. Up to the idea of bad people being saved and good people being rejected, they, they, they listen, but when that was dropped, when, when they realized God wants to save the wicked, their enemies, they lost their minds. That was the thing. And that's, that's where we lose people as Christians. Uh, I, all of us as Christians have been on the other side of this as well, so we can understand. But this is where we, we, can, we, can lo- we, do, we lose people here. The gospel is foolishness to the world, the Bible says. The pr- preaching the gospel is foolishness. That what I'm doing here right now from like a worldly lens, is foolishness, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2. This is why preaching is not uh, moral, uh, ethical teaching or instruction, because that's not foolishness. To stand here and say, love each other, that's good, and the Bible talks about that, but that's not foolishness. The, the world accepts that uh, on some level, right? That's not going to start mobs. 
The message, go love each other, doesn't make people angry, right? Our gospel has to make us disturbed or angry to be true because the gospel all throughout Acts starts riots. And the reason it starts riots is because it, it says, the works of our hands don't count. It's by grace. Enemies are being saved. The last will be first. Things are completely flipped around. The upside down nature of God's kingdom is full in play. And so for our existence, like, you know, and, and a lot of us have come from this, but in general, you know, our, like, mantra, the way we view the world is karmic. And I'm saying we as just, like, as human beings, you know? Like, if we do good, we expect good to be done to us. If we do bad, we expect bad to be done. It's kind of like this karmic, karma idea. But that's not, that's not biblical. That's not actually true. And, um, and this is also where we lose our minds because we're, we're about fairness and justice to the core. And, th- and those things can be good things, of course, but the gospel adjusts them. And, and this is why this is good news. This is like the, the, the gospel should constantly be difficult and problematic for proud people who think they're good, like all of us, but also the best news in the universe. And, and this, is, this is why, in one sentence, we are not treated as, as we deserve in Christ. Isn't that amazing news? This is what you guys, I need to hear this. We need to hear this today. We are not treated as we deserve in Christ. God treats us unfairly. We deserve hell, and he unfairly gives us heaven through his son's shed blood. That's grace. But here's the kicker. He also shows this grace to our enemies. Right? You see that? See the burn there? We get the grace, but also the worst of people that we think don't, don't deserve it. And, and that... We, talk, we ask the question, like, what has the power to diffuse this type of anger? The only answer is the gospel itself. And as I put here, like a, a grace-centered way of thinking. Meaning, believing in the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, but believing in the principle of grace, which, which is to say, we are just as bad as the worst of things in the world. So um, I talked about the different locuses of sin before. There actually would be loci, wouldn't it? I don't even know what the portals of that, whatever. I should have just said locations, but it doesn't matter. Um, is that evil is in different places, right, in the Christian worldview. Evil is out there. It's in the world. We hear about it. We, it's in the news. Uh, we're, we're affected by it. We're angered by it. We see it in other people. Maybe we're hurt, right? Evil's out there. But evil's also in here. And that's the shift that many people don't take because they think they're actually good and, and that God grades on a curve. And that, well, I haven't done that at least, we might be thinking when we look at some kind of offense on the news or whatever. But what the Bible says is actually you have. Jesus says, you may have not committed adultery with your body, but you have 10,000 times with your mind and you're just as liable to the fires of hell as the serial adulterer. Ouch, right? But that's actually good to hear. That's humbling, but... If we believe it, then we'll beg for grace because we know that we're just as bad as the people who have hurt us. So it's the same thing about lying uh, as, as well. I mean, people of our words and oaths. And it's, it's, this is from the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. But for us then, and then, then the third location for Christians is evil is placed on Jesus for us. So evil's out there, evil's in here, but the good news is evil is, our evil's placed on Jesus. He, like that song I think uh, we sang, uh, he, he wears our sin. It's placed on, that, that's the, the best location of evil. The good news, look, the location of evil is placed on him. And so we believe in that. He's judged, 
so there's no consequence for our sin anymore, where our sins are erased. So think about people like in the Bible, like Nicodemus or Peter, uh, or the apostles in Acts. Like we, we have these examples of people who actually do respond really well uh, and, and, and are starting to understand grace. They're not, they don't have the mob mentality reaction like these Jews here. They're Jewish men who are like coming to understand this grace idea, even, even, al- even as already Christians. They're growing in it. Gentile inclusion and the non-partiality of God and what that meant, how they'd undergirded the idea of grace. And so we do see people who respond well, even though it's hard, respond well to this uh, at, at, the same, at the same time. There's no distinction. So I, so I think for Christians then, this is a little bit of a sidebar, um, but this is an encouragement for us not to join the rage culture. Uh, the, the, uh, and we live in that now. It is a, uh, it's an outrage culture. Uh, and, we, and we shouldn't do this. And uh, the, the way that we're prevented from doing that is, is again, the, the gospel. We can be grieved by evil. We can be angered by it. A lot of times that's actually good, right? But we don't lose our minds completely over it. Because, and this is, this is the reason, in evil, we see a mere image of ourselves. We don't get, get upset that how, how dare that person that I think I'm better than even exist. I'm offended they even exist, which is where outrage is now in our culture. It's just impossible to even talk, right? But how dare they even exist? The reason why Christians don't think that way is because we don't think we're better than anybody else. In fact, at the core of our belief system is we don't deserve what we've been given. So how can we freak out when other people who we might even think are worse than us are brought in? And they're not. But the worst of society is a reflection of us. And so it's easier to think then, God saved me and I didn't deserve it. And so we pray for those who are lost instead of saying like the mob, away with them from the earth. And so this is something we can work on. It's a worldview we can, we can uh, embrace as Christians and, and work on, of course. Uh, but it's also something that I think we just have. If we understand the gospel, it's at least, I mean, we have this kind of baseline understanding at least to build off of, but a baseline understand appreciation for reception of the grace of God given through the spilt blood of Jesus who died in our place. And that's the only way to be saved is to believe that. Can't add to it or it's not Christian, only receive it as is uh, by faith. All right, then we continue here in Acts 22. Let's read these next uh, five, six verses Twenty in verse 23. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who was a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do for this man's a Roman citizen? The tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So think of this next section basically is titled, The Principle of Being a Citizen by Birth. Now to be clear, these are Roman individuals, the centurion, the tribune are Roman officials now who are kind of just testing, they want to flog Paul and basically kind of torture him to get the truth out because like, what is going on? They stretch him out. And then Paul says, not stop, I'm a Roman citizen, but he says, tell me, is it lawful for you to do this? Like, it's just this really weird thing. 
which doesn't that sound a lot like Christ too, if you've read the Gospels before? This is actually not quite a word-for-word thing, uh, circumstantially or in the words, but it, it sounds a lot like Jesus when he's on his... Uh, when he's arrested, he's kind of at his trial before his crucifixion and so forth. He has these kind of questions back to Pilate and Herod and so forth that are, it's just, anyway. And that's actually part of it. Uh, Paul is starting to resemble Christ here in the way that he suffers and the way he acts during his arrest. Keep that in mind for just like five minutes from now. We're going to go somewhere else for a second, but, but I'm going to come back to that. So have the weirdness of that verse in mind and say that's why he did it, not because he was odd. Maybe it was odd. I don't know. But because he was Christ-like in how he was, he was talking. We're meant to think about Jesus here uh, with that statement. All right. Put that aside. Put that aside for a second. We'll come back to it. Let's start with this, though. Uh, Paul is a dual citizen. So we said this before in the series. Um, Paul is in his Jewishness and his Roman citizenship. He kind of has a duality about him. Uh, he's fully Jewish, a uh, Jewish man, but he was uh, born into Roman citizenship. We don't know how this happened. It, was, it likely had to be through his father, who may have granted, been granted citizenship by an employer. Uh, there are many ways to gain Roman citizenship in, uh, in these days. We don't know exactly how it happened, but we at least know for Paul, this is the important part, we know for Paul, his Roman citizenship came by birth. And that's actually extremely uh, theologically significant, uh, which, uh, which we'll come to. So when he talks to the tribune, he claims Roman citizenship, which gave him all kind of rights that non-citizens didn't have. Uh, we'll see this come up more in Acts before the book is over. Uh, but again, he, here's the important exchange, and we'll, we'll uh, highlight this here. Here's the important exchange. The tribune answered, I bought my Roman citizenship for a large sum. But then Paul said, and note the contrast, the but. So he doesn't just say, oh, interesting, I got mine by birth. He says, but I am a citizen by birth. <clears throat> so you see how it kind of heightens it there? He says, oh, that's, that's great, Roman Tribune. I actually, I've been a Roman citizen since I was an infant. All right, <clears throat> if you think about now exactly what these two men are saying. So like, like I talked about before, this is theology, not just history. This is not just about Roman citizenship or it means nothing for us because how many Roman citizens do we have in, in the room? Okay, I think zero. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? But there's something deeper going on here. So if you think about exactly what these two men are saying in this juxtaposed kind of way, it might sound inconsequential and unimportant, but it's full of theology. And, and here's what I mean. The Tribune says, I bought my citizenship. But what does Paul say? I didn't buy it. I am this identity by birth. Right? The one says, I worked really hard for this citizenship. I, I made a lot of money. I spent a lot of money. I purchased it with a large sum of money. Paul says that um, I didn't work at all for it. I just received it. I've been a citizen by, by birth. Okay, when I phrase it that way, what does that sound like as it pertains to the gospel? It sounds an awful light, like, a lot like what aspect of the gospel message? Grace and works, Right? This has been the message of the entire book of Acts. It has been grace over and against works. It is the thing that starts riots. It is the core message of all the way back to Acts 2 when the first Christian message is preached and all the way up through Stephen's speech before he was martyred, all the way through the, the councils that meet in Acts 15, and I mean all the way through Paul's missionary journeys through Asia Minor and beyond. It's, it's been the message. And so doesn't it make sense that we would see it play out here yet again in a passage that's not explicitly 
about the gospel, but implicitly it just oozes it and, and drips it. Human efforts on the one hand and grace or undeserved favor on the other hand, right? It has been the, uh, the, the thing. So as Paul's being stretched out to be like tortured, you know, it's, it's interesting how this takes place, but this brief little exchange that Luke cares to record, but really it's God who cares to record this, uh, reflects the gospel that it was at the core of what began the riot and the mob in, in the first place. Christians don't work for or buy their salvation. If you're not a Christian yet, just please hear this. This is not what Christians believe. Even if you've heard that before or just assumed it, Christians do not moralize their way into the faith. It's something God has just given us through his son by grace, and we didn't deserve it. We didn't turn his head by being good. We're not good people here. We're messy people who are covered by by the blood of Jesus. So we're born into it. Kind of like Paul received his Roman citizenship from his father, so do we receive our citizenship in heaven from our heavenly father. And then the fact that Paul here is um, set free against the backdrop of this is so beautiful and, and paradigmatic of our experience too as Christians. So he, he's captured, ready to be tortured, not unlike us in our sin, but then he's set free based off the fact that he's born into this citizenship. You see that? It's when he says, I was born into this, then he's free. Which is exactly like saying for us that we are set free based on the fact that we're born again. We're set free from our sins based on the fact that we've been given grace. We're not set free based on the fact that we've worked for our citizenship in heaven or purchased it with money as if it could be. You know, and it's an it's awesome metaphor because, and Jesus uses this in John 3 where he says to Nicodemus that it's only those who are born a second time, right, born again, who can be saved or enter into God's kingdom, right? So how many of us have, like, worked for our first birth? Did we work really hard to be born, like, out of our mother's womb? I mean, it's silly to think about, right? But obviously not. Did we pay money to be born? Did we pay our mom off to be born out of her womb? No. Did we, were we being good in the womb? Were we impressing our mother and father in the womb with our amazing acts of humanitarian awesomeness? No, right? We are born based off of the love of our mother and father and the intentionality of our mother and father to bring us into the world. Isn't that great? That's why you guys are here if you're a Christian. That's why I'm here. God intended in love to recreate us and rebirth us almost against our will. And here we are. His spirit showed up on the, the doorpost of our life. He, he kicked the door in and he saved us. That's why we're here. He made his gospel beautiful and we believed it because he caused us to believe it. And so we can't boast. There's nothing to boast in as Christians. We can't brag about stuff because we bring nothing to the table. So again, that's the humbling. You see how like, again, the gospel is so humbling and yet amazing at the same time? That's humbling that humbles us in our works, but makes us rejoice in the fact that it's true, that we must be amazingly loved. We must be loved. And so when we hear the gospel, let the riot start, but then understand these things, contextualize them, see our sin in them, and understand that Christ replaces all of our goodness with his bloody body, and that that's the only way to, to enter in and to be saved. So there are so many ways this can preach to us. I hope that it preaches to you in that way, that 
that salvation can't be purchased, so stop trying. Stop trying to hide and wear a mask, even around other Christians, making yourself look better because you think that if you confess your sin, Christians will not like you, which is a way to say, God won't like me. Um, you know, th- there's so many implications here for being open and free in the gospel. And, um, but I hope just in general you see this, that our true citizenship in heaven, Philippians 3, we're citizens of heaven, right, same word, but our true citizenship comes by birth, by rebirth. And we just need to hear this, right? That, like, be, just bask in that today and know that wherever you're at, you walked in here just full of disbelief or, or sin or whatever, or maybe you didn't. It didn't matter. There's no partiality. Wherever, how, whatever you brought here, uh, Christ loves you, forgives you through his blood, and uh, offers you himself, not um, a list of things to do. Also, another implication of this, uh, this is a, a slightly different way of looking at it, but it shows us here how, like, the way we view, um, like, works and grace and, and all of that, it's complicated, but it, it shows us how different we are from the way we used to think when we weren't Christians and presently how, how the world thinks. And, and here, here's what I mean. Um, even when we read this now and we talk about the difference between the, the Tribune and Paul, did part of you, when we read that, think, oh, but the Tribune worked really hard. Like, shouldn't he be celebrated for that? I'm seeing some smiles, so maybe some of you thought that. But, or maybe right now as I said that. Like, this guy worked really hard. Like, I mean, this is the way we naturally are wired to think as we uh, kind of compare. Paul was just given this. He didn't do anything for it. And this guy over here is busting his butt for years, you know, working overtime so he can buy Roman citizenship. And it's clearly not the way. It's not the, like the way we should think about the gospel. I don't know if you guys thought this or not. I don't know. But like, I was thinking this this week, and I, thought, I read an article by Andrew Wilson, who's a, a pastor theologian type guy in England, but he wrote an article in Christianity Today a while ago about how we kind of flipped the ideas of, of gift and working hard. And so like now today, when we say, when someone says, I'm so gifted at something, like um, if someone said, I'm just so, I'm so gifted at being a musician or gifted at um, whatever, uh, be, being a scientist or something or a teacher, we say, really? That's kind of like braggy of you to say gifted. Wow. Like are you, doesn't that sound like top of the pyramid to say gifted? And then if someone said, I just worked really hard for this degree, we'd say, oh, good for you. That's the better way to talk. Isn't that the way we normally talk now? What, what he was saying is we flipped this idea. Gifted should be the most humble way to talk, right? The gifted just says, I did nothing. If I say I'm gifted, in any way, like in the church or outside, whatever I'm talking about, like I'm saying I didn't do anything to deserve it. I was just given it. And yet if I say I worked really hard for something, that's actually the, the, the braggy braggy kind of way to talk, right? Anyway, not that we can never like talk about hard work. That's not what the Bible's saying. It's not what, what I'm saying. Um, there's times to talk about working hard and, and actually working hard for things. But when it comes to salvation, we flip these things around. And... Um, the reality is, gifting is a humbling but more real view on what salvation is, whereas working hard is, is, the, is the, fault, the false view. All right, we've got to finish this up. Acts 22, 29, the last verse. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he abound him. 
All right, so the, the tribune, the, the centurion, they're afraid because they did something like unlawful here, almost did something unlawful. They kind of did by just stretching them out to be whipped, you know, flogged. They're, they're afraid for either their job or maybe that they'd be punished as well for this. There were, there were ramifications for doing this to a Roman citizen. Paul had rights here as a Roman, and so they're afraid. And, and it says here they, they drew back. And so I, I want to kind of subtitle this section, They Withdrew From Him. And, and, and what I want you to do is go back to how I started the sermon. Remember Paul here, the way he's talking, just the fact that he's going to Jerusalem at all to suffer should make us think of who? Jesus. Because he went from Galilee to Jerusalem to suffer. He was arrested by Gentiles. He was bound like Paul. We, we've been talking about this a lot in the series, so if you haven't been here, just to catch you up, we're seeing this... Um, the fancy word is this typological relationship or this symbolic relationship between Peter's, or Paul's actions and Jesus's. And, and the point is, Jesus wants this outflow of his suffering, this outflow of his arrest to be relived out by one of his people so that people would not just hear the gospel from his lips but see it in his body and his, and his actions. And so we get here this strong sense that God isn't going to let any harm come to Paul, that Paul's destiny is in God's hands, not the hands of these examiners and officials here, right? Which is one of these things that should continue then to remind us of Christ. And here's just a, a list that we see play out even into this passage. So, so again, where we've been, both men, Paul and Jesus, were bound, arrested by Gentiles, wanted to go to Jerusalem knowing they were going to suffer there. Both were uncondemned. They were innocent. And so we've been talking about that so far, many other things kind of around that, that, the way that's word number one. But here's the new stuff. More specifically here, during their respective arrests, Paul says, I am a Roman. As Jesus similarly says, after being asked if he was Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God essentially, but Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am. And so note, both are talking about their identities here, right? They're, they're questioned as to what their identities really were. We're talking about their identities. Then, in Paul's case, after he says, I'm a citizen by birth, it says they withdrew from him immediately. And with Jesus, similarly, in John 18, when he said, I am, which is the name of God, coming from Exodus 3.14, it says the arresters drew back from Jesus and fell to the ground. They couldn't stand uh, the power of Jesus saying, I am, which was to say, I am God. And so they withdrew and fell to the ground. But a lot of similar linguistic and uh, thematic similarities uh, here. And so here's why we're doing this. And here's why it's important to see Christ in this. The theological point being, Paul's experiences are an echo of Christ. And in both cases, we're reminded that God will only allow their suffering at the divinely appointed time. In Paul's case, God wants him to go preach the gospel in Rome, and so he can't be killed yet. He's going to find this out next week, but um, he can't be killed yet. In Jesus' case, being God himself, we're reminded that his arrest was allowed, not accomplished by men. And so remember when he says things like this, going back to John for a second. Remember when he said to Pilate, the one who gave the orders to crucify him after this, he said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus is, so this is theologically beautiful and rich, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying here, and this is why this is written down, Jesus did not, 
His life was not taken from him. It was offered up freely. This is the guy who just, who just said, like, hours before this time, when he's talking to Pilate, when he said, I am, and everyone just kind of withdrew and fell down. This is the one who walked on water, delivered the demonized, multiplied fish and loaves, performed all the miracles that, that we read about in the Gospels. He was the one who was there at the beginning of creation, making the world. Jesus was there in the beginning with his father. I mean, the, the, he, if he didn't want to be arrested, he wouldn't, right? And so we had these little exchanges to remind us of this, and even Paul's reminds us of this. Also in John 10, 18, before his arrest takes place, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to resurrect it from the earth, to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So here's the gospel in this, and we're, we're seeing this by way of Paul re-imaging it. it it's, it's reminding us of this important aspect of Jesus' arrest. The gospel is the good news that God's son laid his life down willingly for all of you guys in the room and me, willingly laid it down for all of us to save us from our sins. No one takes from God. No one gives to God. The Bible says that elsewhere. Who can give to God that that he should be repaid as if God needed anything? There's nothing we can give to God. So Christianity views the whole, the whole thing, all of reality that way, that our existence is not we owe God something or we, um, we're here to, to kind of pay him back or to be his, just his servants on earth and, and that's it. That's not the way we view it. We have, no, we have nothing to give to him. It's actually good news. Nor is anything taken, right? So the idea there is he offers himself, he's not, his life's not taken, he doesn't, he doesn't leave the earth too early like, oh man, I didn't know I was going to be crucified today. I thought I had one more year of ministry. Oh well, you know. Like that's not the picture of Christ we see, right? He's willingly going. He knows what's going to happen. He gives himself up. Wouldn't that have been an amazing moment, by the way, to, to just drive this mass of arresting officers to the ground? Then they kind of get up and they're like, whoa, what was that? They're dusting off. And then Jesus says, all right, you can put cuffs on me. It just would have been this extremely fear-filled for them, humbling moment, and clear that he was giving his body. He was not being taken. That's crucial. The gospel is not Christ's life was taken. It's that he gave. He gave to us. And so God's posture to us is, is just that. He wants us to hear these things. He wants us to know what Jesus said. Do you remember at the, um, if you read this before, the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is there and he's transfigured and all this cool stuff's happening? There's a, lot, there's a lot there. But one of the things that God says, his Father from heaven, he speaks out of the cloud to three of the disciples who are there, to the disciples about Jesus. He says, he says listen, listen to my son. Or he says, this is my son. Listen to what he has to say. He has the words of life. God says about Jesus to all of us, listen, actually listen to what he's saying. He's not a moral teacher. This is the kind of stuff he says. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down and I take it up. God wants us to hear the love letter in that. He wants us to hear that it's by grace we're saved in that, that it's by him willingly being bound and him only dying at the appointed time, not as a surprise, but as, as a planned 
intentional, orchestrated by God in Jesus, death that will be accomplished for us so that through that alone, we can be saved from our sins. So to wrap this up then, I'm going to say this similar thing here but with some different language. Um, that, and I'll frame it kind of as a bad news, good news thing. Uh, to borrow language from this passage, you and I, we have, we have, we have all, like the arresting officers, the, the Tribune, the Centurion, the arresting officers in John 18, we have all withdrawn from God. This is a great passage to kind of show how we have not been able to stand the glory and the light of God because we have, been, we have succumbed to the darkness. And so we fall down. See how there's kind of like this tearing away moment when Jesus said, I am, and people fall away from him? That depicts like all of history up to that point. Like people can't enter God's presence. They can't access him. They can't commune with him. They can't dine with him. They can't see him. And so, and Jesus, there's this moment here where they say, all of humanity, this is us. We're the ones that fall to the ground. We've withdrawn from him. We have not been able to stand his glory. We're sinners. We're children of darkness, as the Bible says. We're sons and daughters of Satan. We've been overcome by the light. We withdrew from him. We celebrated ourselves. Uh, good works over God. We grasped for goodness instead of God, which led to disbelief and evil. Uh, we, we think too highly of ourselves. Uh, even if we have poor self-esteem, our self-focus is extremely high at the expense of rejecting God. And that, that is the core of sin. This is, the, this is what we see all throughout the Bible is this lie that you're okay without God and that sin is not that bad. That is basically what's happening in Genesis 3. When sin comes into the world, the lie of the devil is, ah, it's not really what God meant. It's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. And it's a lie we've been listening to ever since. Like, sin's not that bad. But this is what had to happen. Our sin was so bad that this is what had to happen. And God's not putzing around, you know? He's actively pursuing us. And, and, say, and, and so that, that's the good news, this bottom line here. This is the good news. Yet, through it all, though we've withdrawn from God, he not only drew near to save us, but... He did so by allowing himself to be killed in, in our place. He could have used his power to crush us, but instead he laid it down instead so he could be crushed himself so that through his crushing we, we would be saved. This is actually why, um, the, again, to, and I'll end with this, the, the Gentiles are mentioned here. And, and did you notice, by the way, uh, it, I may have mentioned this before, second service. I always think, was that earlier in the sermon or first service? It's like mind job time, but anyway. Um, I'll say it again. As we think about that in verse 21, when it says that Jesus said to Paul, go, because I want to save the Gentiles, go, I'm sending you to save the Gentiles. Did you realize that that's why all of us are sitting here today? Because Jesus said that to Paul? I mean, here we are on the other side of the world, all of us, or most of us, not, not Jewish, far from God geographically, far from God spiritually, far from God in every way imaginable. And because Jesus said, I want to go through you to save them, isn't that an amazing picture of God? God sent his gospel to us. God's not waiting to see who will believe in the gospel. He's going out to ensure that people will believe in his gospel. Isn't that amazing? He's going out, act, this is what Acts 
it's all about. He's going out to actively ensure that people hear. Otherwise, why did he say to, to Paul, go, I'm sending you to the Gentiles with the best message in the universe so those people can too be saved because I love them and I want to save them from hell. Again, we see his intent to save us in the fact that he allowed himself to be arrested and in the statement, go, save people far away from me. Save the children of the devil himself. Save those who have done the worst of things. Save the most atrocious. Save the most demonic. Save the most wicked. Bring my gospel to them. Show them that I was bound that they might be freed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the, the intent that we see. We see so many things here in this passage, so many whispers and yet um, glaring shouts of you uh, in this passage. Uh, but thank you that it just begins as last week's passage ended with uh, you saying to Paul, go, I want you to go to people who need to hear about me in order to be saved because I want to ensure that they're saved, ensure that they live forever, ensure that even though their body dies, one day I'll put it back together and raise it up on a new earth. Ensure that they're forgiven. Ensure they have a, they have a place as an adopted son or daughter in my family. And so God, thank you for doing that. Thank you for being a proactive Savior. So if we're at all saved, it's because you wanted us to be. And so God, use our church to be a mouthpiece for your grace so we can just hear, like you said at the Mount of Transfiguration, you said, listen to my son. This is my son. Listen to what he has to say. You are shouting to us right now in this room through the words of Acts 22. You want us to see your posture. That is, I'm bleeding. I want to bleed for you. I want to show you my glory through my nail-pierced hands and that that's the only way in. And so help us to believe that, God, and not to replace it with anything, even the best of things in life, but to leave it alone as the only thing that can be received from you in order, of, of, in order to save us. Um, you're the giver of all things, God. Thank you for giving us life. In your name we pray, amen.